y'all welcome back i'm super excited i can't i like this is this is going to be a really fun one not to mention an interesting one uh eric is here heart and soul of this podcast head in the heart right here and uh as well as longtime friend of the show um eric and i have actually been on his podcast but uh, we have ross nestle road here and first off how badly did i just butcher your name you fucking killed it man that was bang Bang. all right and then secondly uh just for you know for everybody listening what is it that you do or you're studying to do or you know what i mean what what would you please just kind of lay out who you are right now yeah who are you (laughs) who are you yeah, so um, that's a great question. Um, so I am I'm a board certified behavior analyst or a BCBA for short. So I'll I'll say BCBA a lot because that's easier. Um, so yeah, so I am also a second year doc student in at University of Texas Austin in the autism and developmental disabilities program. Uh, so I'm doing re- research on uh, autism and behavior analysis through that. Uh, but yeah, so basically uh, some of BCBA in short, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's lots like BCBAs do a lot of different things. Um, I particularly work in schools, but I mean, BCBAs work in applied behavior analysis clinics, uh, and do one-to-one therapy with kids, uh, along with, um, behavior technicians, uh, working on different social skills goals for kids with autism or, um, behavior management goals, things like that. Um, I work in schools. There's a lot of BCBAs that work in schools that uh, help do behavior management systems in schools. Um, there's even like OBM in like business settings, organiza- organizational behavior management. Um, so some like consultant agencies and stuff will have BCBAs on staff that specialize in OBM. That's super not me. Um, but yeah, but like right now, I, so I, now I work in an elementary school and I'm a behavior specialist. Uh, and I'm using that to run like a longitudinal study about like how a BCBA on a campus can affect um, affect like behavior and staff climate and stuff like that. I apologize. Um, uh, you broke up a little bit. How what on campus affects behavior? Uh, just like how a, a BCBA on campus. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah. It can like affect uh, like staff climate, um, behavior on campus, test scores, things like that. Is that um, specifically in special education classrooms, or is that across the entire campus? No, so I'm I'm across the whole campus. I'm gen ed and special ed. I'm I'm kind of like in a the best way I describe it to people is I'm kind of like an assistant principal, except for I don't do any of the other admin duties. I literally just handle behavior. Gotcha. And so um, you're what's your face on billions? Yeah. A little bit, yeah, sort, yeah. Of, sort of, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I usually when people say like, "Oh, you're a be- you're a behavior analyst," like, what is that? I usually ask them like, "Have you seen Criminal Minds?" Because a lot of like profiling teams have Ooh. BCBAs. Ooh. Gotcha. Um, Mindhunter shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mindhunter actually is a great example because that's like the foundations of the behavior analysis unit at uh, Quantico. And so, so yeah, so I B- BCBAs are kind of it's it's a lot of things. So, but yeah, I specifically work with people with disabilities, typically in school settings is kind of where my research emphasis is. So that's what I do in, in a minute, that's basically. Awesome. So, I mean, yeah, obviously y'all, uh, I, I'm going to try and be careful, uh, this episode because I mean, look, e- even on the women's appreciation episode, like I, I still, 
I still got a little too loose. Um, you know, when I said my when I said my favorite women's author was a Mayan temple priestess, like look, look, I swear I'm gonna try because just believe me, like like if you choose to do something, I'm allowed to make fun of it. Get a bad haircut, trip down the stairs, like you you know, say you say you dropped out of college on a whim because you were so inebriated. You think tripping down the idea. stairs is a choice? Sorry. Well, you could have chose to take the elevator. You you could have chose okay. to not. You know what I mean? Like any, like all of those completely hypothetical things that I just said, specifically dropping out of college, all those hypothetical things that I definitely never did could have easily been avoided. So you can make fun of them, but look, no one, no one chooses who they are is certainly in the realms of, of the, the autism spectrum or, or anything else. So off the top, I promise I'm going to do my best here to try and stay respectful. So instead I'm going to make fun of the Houston Rockets because they're garbage. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Man, I'm about to hit a <laughs> session on this. I'm thing. only kidding because the way Eric and I met Ross originally was uh, he and Dylan Ellis, friend of the show, longtime friend of the show. They've got an awesome podcast. If you like sports at all, specifically basketball, but sports and uh, waltz to the death. Check it out. Seriously. Check or it if you like sneakers, because yeah. I got I to gotta be honest, there is a lot of sneaker check and talk on that i love it man and if somebody tries not to wear shoes it's uh (laughs) man i yeah that's like one of my biggest hobbies so and and dylan and i are just are equally into it dylan and i are very similar in like a lot of ways and so yeah we're equally into it and then you know there's crawdaddy just for the comic relief (laughs) he's amazing as much as Ross, you and Dylan are into uh, sneakers and such, I would I would argue that your sense of style or your color uh, your color way very different, uh, incredibly. Oh, yeah. Dylan For sure, yeah. Dylan's into anything that's like loud and like kind yes. of abrasive, and Very most of most of what my closet is is just black t shirts, so. <laughs> yeah. fresh and clean. Yep. So, okay. Anyone listening? Um, look, I, honestly, like E and I kind of know Ross. We've done a few episodes or whatever, but anybody listening obviously doesn't know you, Ross. So to get to know you, uh, I'm going to ask you a couple just like quick fire questions, more or less in the form of a story. I, I don't know. This is weird, but you good with that? Yeah, absolutely. Come on. All right. It's Saturday morning. It's a little bit cold outside. Not bad, but just a bit too cold to wear shorts. You've got a, you know, like a, a brunch date with a friend, not even like a fancy date. It could be a guy, girl, not a thing, but just very important clothing related question here. Because like I said, it's just too cold for shorts. What are you doing? Jeans, khakis, sweatpants, et cetera. What do you, what are you, what are you wearing? Jeans for sure. Ooh. I wear the exact same thing every single day. I wear either blue jeans or black jeans <laughs> and I wear some form of, I, I literally, same brand. Same size. I have twenty T-shirts. They're the exact same brand. They're just different colors. And I so see. I wear, I wear that T-shirt. I wear jeans, my blue jeans or my black jeans, and whatever sneakers match my shirt. Bottom thing. All right. See <laughs> what I wear every single day to work and and life really. So I love it. Uh, I, I will never put on jeans again if I don't have to. But that's a different thing. So your friend chose, uh, you know, like a small hole in the wall coffee shop kind of a thing. And by the time you get there, you're a little tired. You need to pick me up. What is your breakfast, morning, uppity beverage of choice? Coffee, tea, juice, et cetera. What are you going for? Is it still too cold to wear shorts outside? Yes. Same day. Okay. Uh, just drip coffee. Or like if they have pour over, I, I, I'm a little bit of a coffee snob. So that's really an interesting question. The fact that you uh, said drip coffee, clearly you are more so than I. Yeah. So I, uh, I, so I used to play in a band and we would play these like camps and conferences and stuff like that all over the like southern part of the u.s and stuff and one of the guys used to work for a roastery and so he was even snobbier than i was and we used to travel with a road case that had like chemexes and a coffee grinder and stuff (laughs) and we would like get beans from wherever we were going and stuff so after doing that for like three years it kind of it just ingrained it in me a little bit um but 
for the most if it's a coffee shop i haven't been to before and i don't like know i'll do like whatever their pour over is and stuff but if it's one that i know like i go to the same coffee shop and work there and i know every barista by name and they like all know exactly what i do because i talk to them all the time i just get drip coffee it's easier all right all right okay so as fate would have it this uh this little spot when you order your drink and in this case drip coffee uh they bring you free toast on the table is butter jam which do you choose jam all day wow interesting wrong yeah, answer, regardless, fair enough. regardless of like what the flavor is too i'm i'm down with any sort of jam i mean don't get me wrong it's just it's jam no butter and jam combo I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't know that was an option. I'm, I'm definitely down for the combo for sure. Okay. But if, it, if it's like, if I have to choose one, just butter or just jam, it's jam for sure. All right. All right. Coloring outside the lines already. Okay. The person that brings you your drink, uh, coincidentally, is the owner of the coffee shop. And she says that she's about to turn on some music, but asks if you have a preference. Do you request something specific or just let her play whatever she was going to? Um, I like in... I'm always trying to like harmonize every situation and just make sure everyone's happy. So like, I'm going to let her play her thing. But if I had to choose, um, it's probably like, uh, like mid nineties hip hop is what is on most of my playlists and stuff. Or, Early two thousands Houston rap is majority. Oh of what, yeah, majority of what I listen to like in my spare time. Like if you were if you just hopped in my car, um, it's typically some sort of early to mid two thousands Houston rap, screwed up click, somebody like that. Yeah. Uh, that's what I grew up on. Like I, I didn't know who Radiohead was until college. Um, yeah, Whoa. I like. Yeah, I was like, man, these Radiohead guys are really good, and people <laughs> they've been around for a long. Hey, y'all heard about these guys? They're pretty decent. Yeah, had every UGK album. Uh, Absol- yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Trill, I had all up. of them. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, all the like New Orleans guys. I mean, yeah, I had I had all of that. Oh, Joe and I love Mysticals for their. Oh, good God, mm-hmm. I've seen them live. That's yeah. Anyways, yes, love, love. Yeah, I uh, I guess it was like three and a half years ago. There was a car show in Austin, and Zero played, and I went to the nice. concert, and I was legitimately the only white person. Yeah, mm-hmm. I um, bet so. It was in, it was one of the best days of my life. It was incredible. <laughs> Galactic. Because I knew I knew every word to every single song. Yeah, Pretty good. You just had to drop out sometimes. As yeah. you do. All right. Last yeah. question and easily the most important question. Uh, you you seem like a relatively in shape dude. I'm guessing you have a diet. What is your cheat day meal of choice when you're going just all out? Don't care. Calories don't matter today. What is what is the effort cheat day meal? So every time that the guys come over to record the podcast, we one, we work out. So I have a, a gym in my garage. And so we do some sort of workout. That's usually pretty bad. And then we always order Wingstop. Or our favorite bar is this bar called Bender. And they make the most, the best wings in Austin. They are hmm. fire. They're so good. Uh, but obviously, bars are closed right now. And so uh, we can't, you know, do that. So since then, we've just been going with like Wingstop, which is not my favorite. But usually it's just, spicy wings that i'm gonna regret at 9 30 <laughs> the next day it's usually my that's my cheat meal for sure i like e i don't know bender do you like i know i've been out of austin for like a decade but like do you know that i've never even heard south of austin bro Is it? oh, it's it's an old school south austin bar like yeah. the, like you'll it's it's kind of a service industry bar which is why dylan likes it so much and like he introduced it to me it's just it's a lot of people who like work at are like waiters and waitresses and stuff or like working coffee shops end up there but it's incredible Gotcha. Very yeah. dive. You don't go there in the daylight for sure. <laughs> Deal. Um, yeah, but it's super good. Nice. All right. So so now that we know 
everything about you. Uh, let's get to the topic at hand. Um, and remember, y'all, I promise I'm trying to be respectful. I swear. Uh, and I, okay, here's something. I have to admit, just right off the top, that I mean, as, as I'm doing kind of research for this topic, I kept searching different phrases. And after a while, I noticed what it was I was typing into Google. And honestly, I, I feel I regret having done it or whatever, but I'm just going to be honest. The things I was searching is like differences between autistic children and normal children, or things like differences in the brain of an autistic person and a normal person. Like the idea that I kept having to phrase it against quote unquote normal is honestly, I mean, it, it's prejudiced in a way or what, you know what I mean? Like it's wrong. So, I mean, I, I'm admitting that up front because of what I found was one person described it, the idea of being on the spectrum and then just the idea of my, just admitting my own biases here, but somebody described it this way. Imagine if the autism spectrum was described like types of cupcakes. You have some with icing, some with sprinkles, some are chocolate, some are vanilla, but they're all cupcakes. Now imagine someone comes up and asks a question like, well, how much cupcake is it? Like, is it a little bit cupcake or is it like severely cupcake? Like, it doesn't work like that. And I, and I admit, this is my own ignorance, my own bias. I mean, it's just something I'm realizing about myself, something I kind of realizing in real time, even as I'm saying this, like to treat anyone different because of their, you know, anything is, is just unfair. Like, tall dudes can dunk better than short dudes. That's why, Ross, I'm wicked jealous because you can dunk and I'm, I can't. But that doesn't make you or me a good or bad person. Like, it doesn't like, so I guess what I'm saying is don't judge people, like at all. Most people are probably trying their best and it's all they're capable of. Much like this podcast. We, we've only got like 12 followers, guys. We're trying our best, okay? So, Ross, what got you into this field of study in the first place, man? Like, what even took you down this road? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I Kind of like before I get into that, though, like your, your previous point, I think that's super interesting just because like there's... there's So there's this movement. I was going to talk about it later on, but, but I think it's a good place to like preface it. There's this, this movement called neurodiversity. Um, and some of the stuff that I sent you guys, like, uh, Steven Silverman, he wrote a book called Neurotribes. Um, it's a really excellent book if you guys want to learn a bit more about autism, but kind of gives you a history of autism, you know, how we got to where we do now. Um, and there's this movement that's kind of going on called neurodiversity. Um, and, and it's excellent. And, but at times, uh, my field in particular, uh, kind of is viewed at odds on it. So, um, one of the most important things is about neurodiversity is just the acceptance of people with autism. Um, and, and one of the phrasing, one of the, one of the aspects of that is people first language is using the word person with autism versus autistic person. But there's also this very interesting side where there are a lot of individuals with autism that are adults that, um, you know, have verbal capability to, to express themselves in a way that they refer to themselves as autistic people rather than people with autism. Um, and they prefer it that way. And they, they will, they will, you know, advocate for themselves as an autistic person rather than a person with autism. So, um, typically like in our field, what we do is until a person can kind of make that choice, similar to like a gender identity, we'll kind of refer mm. to people as like a child with autism or a person with autism until they can kind of make that choice for themselves. Um, just because just out of respect for the, for the individual. Uh, but there are a lot of people that also use the word or use the phrase autistic person. And so it, they're, they're kind of interchangeable. Like you're not going to offend anyone by calling, you know, someone autistic, but typically in regards to children, which is what I work with uh, most of the time, we say like a, a child with autism or a person with autism. That way we're using person first language and not defining them by their disability. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's one side. Um, and then there's also this piece of the neurodiversity movement where, uh, you know, as a society that we are, we should uh, respect people with autism and their, their differences and their behaviors and things like that, that, um, you know, a lot that we, we should not expect anything other than who they are, basically. 
um, which is a little bit at odds of, of what I do because we are, I do specifically work on behavior change for individual with autism. Um, but typically our, our goal and our mindset is that of we want people with autism to, we don't want to change them, but we want them to be able to access their environment in a way that's meaningful for them and being able, and allows them to be able to build relationships that they, that they want, you know, right. not necessarily that they need, but just like ha- giving them the skills to be able to build relationships if they want those things, but also giving them the skills to access their environment and be able to access things like gainful employment, right? So they can support themselves um, or at least be able to, uh, to be able to care for themselves in, in a way that's that, uh, you know, allows them to be dignified as, as um, individuals. So, so yeah, I think it's like, it's super interesting that you like we're kind of working through those processes because that's a whole movement that's going on called neurodiversity right now. Um, and, and sometimes like we kind of get pushback from it because, you know, we're like, Oh, you're just changing this person with autism. You're working on, you know, this stereotypic behavior that they have and stuff like that. Um, which is, is, uh, it's commonly called stimming. Like you'll hear that a lot from us. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So just a repetitive behavior that a person with autism has, um, and for me, like as a behavior analyst, you know, and wanting to respect that per- that individual with autism and and uh, not change who they are, you know, my goal in that is not for to to eliminate their their we call it stereotypy, but their like stimming, um, but it's allow them to access it in a way that is meaningful for them, but also allows them to access their environment. So if a, a kid, for example, has like a loud vocal stereotypy where they just yell out randomly, um, you know, we I, if that's something they that they need then we just have to figure out a context in which that is appropriate because it's not appropriate in class and it's causing them to, to lose access to their curriculum. Right. And so we have to find a way to be able to for, have them access that, whether it's a different way or whether it's like, okay, yeah, you can go in this room and scream for a little bit, you know? Um, and that's at, at times in people and people within the neurodiversity movement, that's viewed as changing this person with autism, like changing them as an individual and may, and, uh, not accepting their uh, them for who they are. Yeah. My my so. question was going to be like: Is the neurodiversity movement intrinsically against any sort of behavior modification or any sort of behavior management, or is it just so new that they're trying to figure out where that part of what you do fits into what they believe? Yeah, I I think that uh, that it's both. So I think that it is a very new movement, and so I think that the pendulum has kind of swung to that side of like, why are you attempting to modify? The behavior of individuals with autism because they're that that's who they are and so there's no need for you to change who they are um but i think that you know there there's also been a history in our field in my field in particular of trying to modify behavior to a point where uh the characteristics of an individual with autism are no longer sort of beaten down right yeah 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 they're no longer present and so that is something that we don't want you know and so it, it's this really interesting balance. And so sometimes like, I mean, I had this happen like in a class where, uh, you know, we, we kind of were, my cohort is a group of people who are all doing um, the program together. And we are in a class with a cohort that is not within our field of study. And so, you know, we were talking, I, w- I was talking about a study that I'm working on right now. Um, and that kind of triggered something in, in, in another individual from another cohort. And they were kind of, they basically said like, well, ABA is not respective of people with autism. Apply behavior analysis, ABA. Right. Sorry. Okay. Um, ABA is not respective of people with autism because it just tries to change who they are. And so we got we got to have a really interesting conversation, but at, at times it kind of comes off that way of like very brash and like, well, you guys just want to like ruin these individuals with autism and not 
uh, accept them for who they are. But also, but really our heart behind it is like, we want them to be able to access their environment in a meaningful way. So it's almost like the intent is really what needs to be the focus of sort of what you're doing as much as the actual thing that you're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also like, there's not, there's definitely people who have built behavior change programs that are not necessarily respectful of individuals with autism. And that's like sure. the hard thing. It, it, it's similar to like teaching where like you had bad teachers, right. And you had really great teachers that changed you. I, I mean, I'll go out on a not very long limb and say that there are bad BCBAs that are making behavior change sure. programs that are not appropriate. And there are great BCBAs who are, who are respecting the wishes of individuals with autism and, and um, helping them to, to grow in their uh, innate abilities. So yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of two sides to the same coin. Um, but it's but I think it's really interesting that when you were um, kind of that you kind of came to that conclusion on your own when you were searching for these things, you know. Well, it, um, it helped honestly. Just as a quick let, like there's a there's a whole Reddit like subreddit or whatever just just called autism and like reading these people's stories and how people have addressed them. I was like, holy shit! Like that's so not fair to ever put anybody up against the, the concept of normal because a nobody's normal but b especially in this scenario like to to try and make any type of like distinguishment between what a person is versus what they aren't like why what, what are we even doing but yeah i admit that was my own bias or ignorance coming into this but then okay so so what got you into this in, in the first place then um that's a great question yeah so uh just by happenstance, I kind of felt ass first into this a little bit. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so I moved to Austin. I so I have a theology undergrad, and <laughs> I know yeah, theology and music, right? Um, theology and music. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted like- I wanted to be basically I went to a small private university. I went to Baby Baylor, um, not Baylor <laughs> like. You and HB. Yeah. 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 University it. of Money Hungry Baptists. Come on. That's right. Now. That's right. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I wanted, I realized about a year and a half in, I wanted to be an education major, but I only had money for three years. So I had to graduate in three years. And so, uh, I had already completed enough courses to be a theology major. So I was like, I guess I'm going to be a theology major. Cool. <laughs> and so, uh, and I did the music minor cause I was playing music at the time and I loved it. And so, uh, so yeah, so I graduated there in 2013, moved to Austin and that was my job. I was a musician. I just, I, uh, was playing for the church that I go to. And I was also, um, doing some studio work and just playing some like side gigs with different people. Um, but that doesn't pay super well. And like we were eating, but like, that's about it. Uh, so I, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And so I started my certification process to be a teacher and I, I wanted to be a high school history teacher because my, my favorite teacher growing up was a high school history teacher. And she really, uh, made me enjoy school sort of um i was a terrible student in college so i don't know what happened there but uh but yeah so i uh i want to be a high school history teacher but asd is a really big district and there's a lot of people trying to get into it and so it's very hard to be a high school it's history a very well educated area too right yeah. yeah yeah and so it's very hard to to just jump in as a high school history teacher and so i was just trying to get a job in education at you know at all and so basically the only option was to be a teacher assistant. And so I applied at a couple different places. There was a couple of school districts around Austin that offered me a job as a TA, but one school in Austin offered me a job as a TA. It was called Rosedale School. And so I jumped in there uh, with that job and I did not know what the hell I was getting myself into at all. <laughs> um, so Rosedale is a specialized campus in AISD uh, and it's all special ed. Uh, there's not a single general education student there. 
Um, it's the most restrictive environment that Austin ISD can provide short of like a state hospital or a residential facility. Um, so there is a medically fragile wing, which is students who typically have nurses that are with them all the time. Um, they have uh, severe physical impairments. Most of them are, are in wheelchairs. Um, but the public education system is, uh, you know, according to IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, we're, we're required to provide them with an education, a free and appropriate education. And so, yep, Eric is like, yes, you're you're, you're speaking my language. Yeah, this is game. Um, so yeah, so so we're required to pro- provide them with education. But you know, a typical elementary school is not prepared to have a student who has a nurse all the time, who's on a G tube, uh, you know, who may have seizures frequently and stuff like that. We're just not prepared. So Rosedale has a medically fragile uh, unit, or I'm sorry, wing, uh, and it's ages 3 to 22. Um, And then they also have a severe behavior wing, uh, which is 3 to 22. And so I ended up in a severe behavior classroom, elementary, and I straight up hated it at first. Wow. It's a shock to the system. There's no way it's an easy place to be, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I would have like legit panic attacks before work. Um, like I, I still, I mean, this is, so I'll, I'll tell this story and I, and I'll, I'll probably tell some more at some point. And this is like in no way, uh, uh, speaking ill of the, the student. This is honestly speaking ill of me because I was very unprepared for this position. Um, but I had a student with autism who walked in the first day and he, uh, was nonverbal. He was not, you know, able to speak to me. And so I was trying to get him to, put his backpack away and he had kind of opened the fridge that was in our classroom. It was like, you know, moving things around and I was trying to help him get his backpack put away. Um, and he turned and he bit me on the stomach, like till I bled like, through, through my shirt. Um, and like, wouldn't let go. And I couldn't, I didn't know how to, how to re- remove him, you know? Yeah. So I was just kind of like, uh, oh, this person's biting me. This hurts really bad. I don't know what to do. And finally he let go. And I like, I could see his teeth marks like bleeding through my shirt. Um, and then he, oh was yelling at me and was like taking his clothes off and I like didn't know what to do. So I like ran and I got some hand sanitizer and like threw it on there. Cause I like, didn't want to, you know, something. Yeah. Yeah. Get, I just want to disinfect it. And by that time he was completely naked. Uh, it, he was about, he was around seven. Um, he's completely naked and he ran out the door and I didn't know what to do. And so I was just kind of like standing there. And then I finally, I ran out the door after him and I didn't know which direction he went. And so I went one direction. Turns out he didn't go that way. Oh my God. Uh, so I, I had run all the way down the hall. I was trying to find him, trying to find him. Another teacher was like, I think I saw him go that way. So I ran out of the building trying to find him. <laughs> he had gotten out the back gate of the school, um, oh, still running, completely naked. Uh, and he ended up on Burnett Road. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. He ended up on like a four lane road, busy yeah. road. And uh, I, I ended up having to, you know, like basically restrain him because I was trying to keep him out of traffic. Um, and the cops got called. We were like in the, this gas station parking lot. And like yeah, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was a thing. That was like my first 15 minutes of teaching special education. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. I'm uh, so did they I'm curious what kind of training you got before they threw you into this environment. I mean, so so I got I got some training, you know, for like how to handle um but like did they make you do like handle with care or any sort of restraint techniques or anything like that? So I, I, I hadn't yet done that. So like that was uh, that was on the horizon for me, but I hadn't yet done that because I for some reason I guess they thought that that wouldn't happen in this classroom because it was a new student. We didn't really know. Gotcha. Um, and so it was kind of a like, you know, 
Everything it's like, oh, by the way, maybe we need more than we thought with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I ended up having to go through this thing called SAMA, which is Satori Alternative Methods for Handling Aggression. Um, and that's typically if we do have to do a restraint on a kid, that's the method that we yeah, use. Yeah, I assume y'all had some proof program. That was- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I got some training after that. But yeah, that was my first 15 wow. minutes. So uh, panic attacks, you know, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so... Shouts I mean, to you for going back for day two, quite honestly. Yeah, dude. I mean, honestly, it was it was more of like we needed a paycheck, you know. Yeah. yeah. My wife and I were so broke, we had no money, and I just was like, I can't quit this job. I, we have to. It's eat. Amazing what economics get us to do. Huh? Yeah. 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 So, uh, so yeah. So I hated it, um, but you know, after a couple of weeks, like getting hit in the face is like that's a Tuesday. You know, you just get used to like taking a right hook. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. So. Uh, Basically, like through that though, you know, eventually I got to be able to like kind of know the students and like read them and understand like their behavior had meaning. You know, it was like communication, uh, and so it wasn't just them. Like, you know, this kid is is quote unquote bad, and he's just you know trying to bite me because he's he's bad, right? It, it, he he was trying to communicate something, and it became a little bit more bearable because it was like this kid had his behavior had meaning, you know, and I was I and I can kind of decipher what that meaning is and hopefully help this kid, right? It's a form of communication um, in the same way hand gestures are like ASL is for people who can't speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, after like two and a half months, three months and stuff, probably like, you know, around this time of the year, like early November and stuff like that, uh, I loved it. Uh, it was super weird. It just kind of like one day I woke up and like, I just really loved it. You know, um, like the kids, my kids were very, very, very tough. Um, but uh, But I liked it a lot. And then it just so happened that the teacher in that classroom was leaving in December and I had already started the process for my alternative certification. And so my principal was basically like, do you want this job? <laughs> um, and I was like, it's a pay raise. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I worked there. I did that. I worked there for like three and a half years. So Ross, you said you had worked there for what? Three, three and a half years as the teacher, right? Yeah. So when did you start thinking, oh, this is something I want to pursue more in the education field as far as master's? Mm-hmm that kind of thing yeah, yeah. so um so I, I i transferred from that school to like another elementary school um just because i wanted kind of a different experience so i was a i was a life skills teacher at that elementary school which life skills is like the the most restrictive program on a normal campus so uh it's typically like nonverbal kids with autism kids with with you know behavior that doesn't need to be managed quite as severely as a place like rosedale so i did that for two years and in my like kind of at the end of my first year um, I, I realized like one, I, I really love this and I want to know more. And two, like I was, I'm, I get these kids, like I understand them. Um, you know, not, not all the, all of the ins and outs of every kid and stuff like that. Of course but, not, but that's but, in a general sense. It's yeah, a unique yeah. concept to have, right. To be able to actually like connect with people, certain people and be able to communicate with them. So to pursue that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I started, I, I applied to UT um, and I'd also, I'd been hosting like student teachers in my classroom, um, for a couple of years. And so I'd gotten to know the, the field supervisor for UT and she was like, please do the master's program. And so I was like, all right, cool. Uh, so I did that. It was like, a, it's a one year program. It's like 12 hours a semester. It's very intense. It sucks, but you do it like while you work too. Um, yeah. so I, you grind it out in a year. And so, uh, I did the early childhood special ed program at UT and so, uh, but so within that, it's, it's uh, basically it's about early childhood development, uh, but also about um, behavior analysis. And so that's a big emphasis that we have. And so it all it meets the accreditation for you to become a BCBA, which is what I do. So, yeah. so that's um, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, the the B the BACB different. It's the accreditation board. Um, they have like a certain course sequence that you have to that your university has to follow for you to be eligible. Um, so I had to take all those courses in that certain order, and then I also have to you have to get fifteen hundred supervised hours. So you have to have a BCBA um, like me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, to supervise you for 1,500 total work hours. And there has to be a certain amount of those hours where the BCBA is like in your presence, like 5% of the hours. There has to literally be someone in your presence. Gotcha. Um, And then you have to do like a certain amount of stuff where you're not working with kids. You're doing like planning and like things like that. Um, So yeah, so I I did that uh, for a year. I did that program. That was one year and I had done my 1,500 hours uh, a, a little over a year. And then uh, you have to take a board exam, which is literally the hardest test I've ever taken in my entire life. Uh, I I I'm going to conservatively say that I studied 200 hours for that test, and that's Good probably on the God. list. Um, that's like a bar yeah. exam. You might as well be a lawyer at that point. Yeah, it, it's bananas. It's very difficult. Um, it's like 180 questions, and you have three hours to do it. Um, and some of the questions are like full paragraphs that you have to read um, and like decipher what they're trying to ask out of it and stuff. So it's, it sucks. Um, but I passed it. Uh, and so, yeah, so that was like two years, two and a half years ago. Um, and so I, after, once I was finishing up, I basically got a call from an old principal who was at my current placement and she was like, Hey, I, I'm at this school, um, this title one school, and uh, our test scores are in the gutter and our behavior is like unmanageable. And so I don't, I don't know how to fix it, but if I give you a salary, will you fix it or nice. try to? And right. so I was like, okay. So basically on paper for the first year, I was a reading instructional coach. I know, okay. nothing, I know nothing about teaching reading. Like nothing. Yeah. There, and there's uh, now there's very specific things that you have to do. I think all elementary school teachers are going to be required to be reading instructors now, I think as part of house bill three. Yeah. Pretty sure is new. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. 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 So I, I know nothing about teaching reading. And so, um, so yeah, so I, uh, basically became a behavior specialist at a campus. Um, so yeah. And I, and it, it was cool because typically, uh, behavior analysts work mostly in special education, but I was able to work in general education and special education. So those kids who don't necessarily have a disability, but just like wild the fuck out in classes, basically, um, hey, I, I get me. to like, I get to hang out with and, and build behavior plans for, you know, DAP um, students. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it's, it's super interesting. It's super cool. That is a wild, like the tale of how you like, and I like the way you said it, you, you, you fell ass in it into it. I might argue that you fell Asperger's into it. Hey, I'm an nice. asshole. Moving on. Nice. Did y'all know, did you know anybody with autism before? I know I'm terrible. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. Okay. Did y'all know anybody before, like before, I mean, Ross specifically you, but I mean, E as well. Like, did y'all, do you have any family members, friends with, with autism or did, did you know of anybody? That kid that bit me was the first kid with autism I ever met. No, I don't think I did know anybody with autism. I did when I worked at the, I worked at the Bob Bullock Museum in the movie theater, and when I worked there, there were two employees who I was actually the supervisor over, who um, had I guess the DSM five would now call it uh, intellectual development disorder. Yeah. Okay. Compared to what we would, I guess I don't know. It was previously referred to as mentally retarded, yeah, but retarded, but right, that's, yeah. that's moved out of literature to where now it's intellectually yeah. disabled, yeah. So, but I worked, so I was a supervisor for two employees who had that disorder, quote unquote, and so 
that was sort of one exposure I had to sort of the, I don't know, special ed field or certain accommodations that you would have to do for people who have disorders or development or behavior issues or some sort yeah. of brain thing to where it's, you can't do things that you would typically do or say or manage in the same way. Yeah. That's wild. So I, I, I mean, besides one guy, and we're going way back in the day that I used to when I back when I used to do poorly stand up comedy. There was a dude that would would kill open mics. He would destroy it. And his, I later found out. I mean, years later, I found out he had Asperger's, which I, I didn't even know. But his form of crowd work was so unique. Like it was truly beautiful. And like, cause I, I know I nerd out on standup comedy, so we won't stay on this topic long, but what he was able to do and get crowds to do with him was truly magic. Like the, the guy was a goddamn genius. And then like two, three years later, someone was like, yeah, he's got Asperger's. And at the time it like changed my opinion of what I thought of him, which is bullshit. Like that, that shouldn't be a thing. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm admitting that like in real time, like I'm realizing all of these. What do you mean by that? Dude, okay, I went from thinking he was truly a genius to thinking, oh, he's just kind of weird with Asperger's. And what's the fucking difference? Like, genuinely, what's the difference? Why yeah. Why would hearing a word, why would hearing one word, the word Asperger's, change anything about a human being? It doesn't. But at the time, it did. And this was, you know, I was like 23 or something, usually just inebriated all the time. But, like, his... He, he was such a masterful craftsman. He got an entire audience of strangers to sing. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts together. No one had ever met each other. We're at a coffee shop. There's like 40 of us. No one knows any. And we're all singing together because this guy was that good. And just hearing that word framed him differently or made me frame him differently, which is just fucking wrong because it's, it's not right to judge anybody based on, you know, any, you know, I don't want to say differences or, you know, whatever, because I mean, there are so many successful people you know, with all types of disorders, but like uh, autistic people like Dan Aykroyd, Anthony Hopkins, Jerry Seinfeld, like there's so like Einstein, supposedly even Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, like the list goes on. But there's what I wasn't able to find on the spectrum is what you're saying. Dude, yeah. Like it, all of these were on the spectrum. I mean, Roseanne, Courtney Love, Steve Jobs, Tim Burton. There's so, so many. But what I couldn't find was a lot of team sport athletes. Plenty of athletes, plenty of runners, surfers, swimmers, snowboarders, fighters, a couple of good, good fighters. I could only find one dude, a dude named Jim Eisenrich or Eisenreich. I don't actually know, but he played baseball for a couple of years. But he he had uh, he was on the spectrum and he had Tourette's, which is I can't imagine. Like neither one of those is easy. Both got to be like, I can't imagine. But he, you know, with medication and, and telling his teammates what he played for like 15 years in the league. Y'all, we're going to fire our sound guy. He's, he's making a lot of mistakes. So, Ross, in your opinion, and again, it's kind of a tough question, I admit, but why do you think uh, that athletes, you know, athletes with autism tend to excel in solo sports as opposed to team sports? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, so autism is a social and communication disorder, primarily, um, you know, like I, like I talked about a little bit. So, it, it's difficult to, to read people, right? It's difficult to build relationships if you have difficulty like reading facial cues, um, you know, understanding social norms, things like that, right? Mm. Um, and that can be difficult in sports, right? And then there's also the fact that, you know, one, another, uh, uh, another characteristic of people with autism is restricted interests. And so, um, we were just talking during this little break. Uh, about Joe's Joe's kids, right? So, so young children typically have some restricted interest, right? That's why they can watch Paw Patrol on just repeat the oh, entire day, right? Chase is on the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, the, or they'll watch Frozen for the nine thousandth time, right? That that happens yep. with young kids. But like, typically, you're able to increase their motivation for other things, you know, and be able to use that to to widen their interest, right? So, you know, um, I know you don't like baseball, but let's go throw a baseball around. And I'll buy you some ice cream, right? And then they're like, cool, yeah, I like ice cream. Um, you know, with people with autism, 
typically like those other things are not as motivating as the more restricted interests, right? And so uh, one, those people with autism probably had a restricted interest for whatever individual sport that they've been playing, right? For a, for a really long time. Yeah. And, and also typically uh, those those characteristics of autism don't typically show up until, you know, two, three, f- even four years old. Um, and typically team sports are not available when they're that young, right? Um, it could be that like, you know, for example, um, you know, you sent one about a, a race car driver, right? And so it could be that, you know, a young child that's two, three years old that's, you know, has autism spectrum disorder is really obsessed with cars, right? So a natural progression is like, I want to know everything about a car. Awesome. I really want to like, I love watching these cars go fast. I want to get behind the wheel and I want to make it go fast. Right. Um, Repetitive behaviors turning left every fucking second is probably really fun for them. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Or like watching wheels spin, things like that. Right. Um, So, yeah. So I I think that that is part of it is that one, the characteristics of characteristics of autism in young children um, typically limit their, their interests. And also those, team sports are not as necessarily as available, but I, I was telling Joe a really interesting story uh, because I, I think that again, autism is a spectrum and there's like the very cliche thing of like, you've, if you've met one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism, right? Right. Yeah. Cause they're all different. Yeah. Um, but I have a, uh, an eighth grader with autism that I work with in a social skills group and uh, he loves basketball and the NBA just as much as I do. Nice. And so uh, that's like his restricted interest. Like he loves it. He, he loves it so much. Um, he knows just as many stats about the NBA. He knows every player. Um, yeah, it's incredible. And so, like, for him, that's his restricted interest and his highest reinforcer. So, like, if we get done with our sessions and he, you know, finishes all of his programs and doesn't curse at somebody, it's basically his criteria. is like, hey, just don't cuss at anybody. Um, you know, he controls his emotions. Then, like, we... The, our clinic bought a basketball hoop and me and him go hoop afterwards. That's awesome. And so like, you know, when he starts getting upset about, Hey, Hey, you need to chill. Cause I'm trying to hoop later. All right. All right. Just, <laughs> yeah. just calm yourself down. Take a breath. You're all right. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that's part, I know that's a long winded answer for, for that question, but I think the restricted interest is the biggest part. No, that totally yeah. And I think the communication part makes a lot of sense too. Cause if you think about team sports, communicating and then reading people, especially like, Nonverbal cues as much as anything in team sports like basketball or football or that kind of thing is pretty important. And I feel like it makes sense that people on the spectrum might struggle with that, especially at a young age. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Man. All right. So uh kind of left turn here because I Ross had sent Eric and I a, a bunch of information and some TED Talks and stuff. And, and so looking into a lot of this stuff, the, the early days of autism research, like at least to me, and like, I don't, I don't know anything. I admit this. So just take what's worth. But like it to me, it becomes awfully apparent that there were vast differences, differences in approach. Like in 1943, the American psychiatrist Leo Kanner or Kanner, I don't know, but he studied 11 children. And he did so with with a seemingly overwhelming negative attitude. Like him and, and this guy, Bruno Bettelheim, he was born in Austria, but he spent his entire career in America. Both of these guys studied autistic children, and they all came about like they blamed the parents. They were saying that the mothers were, were callous or cold, and they weren't friendly enough with their children. And that's what caused these autistic behaviors. Refrigerated the mothers. Yeah, dude. That's, that's like, that's... 
laughably absurd from a 2020. Yeah, but we also used to take people's teeth out for like psychosis issues. So like Dude, we've never been that great at science as a Dude, yeah. problem. Leeches were a thing. Like as a, as a human species, we used to attach leeches. So like looking back at it, it, it was some forms of them were awful. But then Hans Asperger uh, was, was, in my opinion, let me like, again, I don't know anything, but he did it with such a, a more positive, like it, there was playtime therapy in like outdoor classrooms and gave children space to, to run and play. So like, I, I think, and look, I, I know nothing about psychology and, and humanity studies, but I feel like it was all centered around the person doing the studies. You know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? Like they were projecting their own shit. Like the American studies were cold and spiteful and very finger pointing and angry. Whereas the Asperger studies in Europe were, were open and centered around activities and, 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 and almost more happy, honestly, a lot like prisons, a lot like the American prison system versus a lot of European prison systems. Like it's, it's weird how that happens. But, uh, but yeah, anyway, so to left turn sort of kind of down that road, like, in your opinion, Ross, have we come a long way? You know what I mean? Like, because you're in it now, you're in the thick of it now. W w would you say that we have made progress? I suppose from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we made leaps and bounds. Yeah, and that it. If you again, this is another like shameless plug, but that that book Neurotribes by Steve Silverman is is incredible because he does a really good job of kind of showing the at odds between Kenner's approach and Asperger's approach. Hmm. Um, and, and also it, he also does a great job of making sure that Asperger is not put on a pedestal because he was also a Nazi scientist that ended up having to execute all of his children at the end. And so I did not know that. Holy exactly. shit. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it was not all of his fault, but basically to, to save himself in, in Austria, that was the, that was the end of his research. Yeah. Um, not so, yeah. a great time to be alive in Europe, guys. Wow. I mean, the yeah. 40s sucked. Can we just say that? Like, the yeah. life sucked in the 40s. Uh, yeah. Not in America. Make America great again. American <laughs> Pork Server Podcast. Thank you. MAGA, bro. Oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. So, so yeah. So, I mean, that he also, he does a good job of not like, you know, making can, uh, I'm sorry, Asperger into this, this huge hero. But also, Asperger is one of the first ones to, to write about, you know, um, he actually called it uh, early onset schizophrenia. So they thought oh, that a long time ago, they thought that autism was just schizophrenia that schizophrenia typically displays around like 17 to 18. And they just thought that it was early onset. And so they thought that it was young children displaying schizophrenia because it appeared that they had another personality, right? That they were, um, that they were uh, within themselves and then could eventually break out and like have social interactions. So um, that was like their, their thought. But, but, you know, like addressing your question more directly, like, yes, we, we have evidence now on what treatments are effective for helping children with autism build social communication skills, um, you know, uh, to decrease problem behavior for children with autism and things like that. Um, the hard thing is, is that uh, not everyone understands which treatments are evidence-based and evidence-based treatments are not sexy. Like they are, they're not, they're not like at the, so realistically the most effective evidence-based treatment for young children with autism is early intensive behavior intervention, which is a mixture of what we call discrete trial training, which is uh, um, direct training on um, different verbal behaviors that happen in your daily life. Um, and also uh, behavior intervention, like problem behavior intervention and also uh, generalization of teaching those uh, things like 
like for the color red, like teaching the color red at a table situation, which is discrete trial, or also in their natural environment, like teaching them in the natural environment. Okay. Um, and the initial studies on that was literally 40 hours a week for three-year-old children, right? And so, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a lot of debate about like the the amount, right? And uh, you know, but it makes sense because you need a certain amount of evidence. Yeah, you have to, right? Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and and I mean, like that. That being said, like there are still young children that you know are receiving ABA therapy for twenty, thirty, forty hours a week. You know, just because uh, the their problem behavior is very severe. Their um, their speech delay uh, and verbal behavior delay is pretty severe. Um, you know they they don't have um, independent functioning skills like toileting skills or things like that. You know, and so there are still there are still individuals that are receiving that. Um, but that is the that that is the evidence basically is that like early like as soon as uh, a diagnosis is found, intensive right. So like a decent amount of hours and typically one to one. Um, and behavioral based, right? And so that is the that is like the one the one really evidence based treatment for individuals with aut- young individuals with autism, um, and that is not as, as sexy as like a hyperbaric chamber. It's also um, not cheap either, right? Like if you think about the financial implications of that for anybody who isn't in a certain socioeconomic status or for the taxpayer in general, right? Like try selling that to people that your tax money should go to that. Yeah, absolutely. One-on-one autism research. That's a difficult sell. Yeah, for sure. And and, and that's the hard thing too, is that like the also early intensive behavior intervention or ABA, like what I do, like we don't sell a cure. We're not, we're not curing. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, But there are a ton of fad treatments out there that That are selling, are selling cures. Right. And they're saying, okay, for $5,000, you can get in this hyperbaric chamber and we'll cure your kid with autism because it, because this one kid the other day got it right. Um, and, and these, and, and this is not any way to like blame the parents either, because like these parents, they, they want, you know, they, they want to see their kid, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Joe, like you're a dad, like you, you want what's best for your kid you know, no matter what. And like no dollar amount is going to stop you. Right. Yeah. I'd sell you, a kidney if I thought it'd work. Exactly. Yeah. And, but the thing is, is people understand that and they understand that they can make money on that. So they understand that they can, you know, charge $3,000 to have kids with autism swim with dolphins. Um, and claim that they cure it or, you know, it, there are even ones that are like as unethical as like, you know, the magic, magical mineral cure or whatever, the like bleach guy. Oh yeah. They claim that as a cure for autism. And there are a lot of people who have like had serious medical issues from that. And he's made a shit ton of money. Like if I was you know, smarter, there'd be an easy joke about Trump and chloroquine, but I can't say chloroquine, so we're just yeah. going to keep moving. Yeah. Um, um, I was uh, I was talking with my mom today, and if I was any better of a host or a better son, I would have asked her days ago, because we've been planning this episode for a while, because uh, she used to teach autistic children, and I've known that since I was a child, and I just forgot until literally today. But she was telling me you know, a couple of anecdotal stories, which I'm not going to go too deep into, but there was a couple of the kids that she used to teach back in the day that you know, basically everyone is different is kind of the, the long and short of it. There was a couple of kids that were just like, would not have physical touch. Like you could not like just period. It wasn't happening. There was a couple that would like only want a hug like that kind of thing. Like, so the idea that 
that this that because back then it wasn't necessarily a spectrum. You know what I mean? Like back then, because the way she says it, I mean, it, everybody was just kind of in the, the, the as in her own terms was just in the special ed or or the retarded category. And I know that these are all these are terms from the seventies. Don't judge me. I'm just I'm just saying what used to be. And she was so happy that like she's stoked to listen to this episode because I was telling her like yeah, no, it's, it's much different. On, you know, it's a, definitely a spectrum now. And this guy Ross, like, yada yada yada. So she's stoked. But basically, what I'm what I'm, what I'm kind of asking is it. My mother kept saying that some of the kids that were the ones that could get hyper-focused, she believed that they were incredibly intelligent, but in her, in their heads, in the kids' heads, there was just almost maybe too many things happening at once, too many synapses firing at once. There was just a lot going on, but when they did focus, they could get hyper-focused. And in her opinion, these kids were just as intelligent, if not more intelligent than everybody else. Is that a fair assessment in your opinion? Is that still kind of, you know, with what's trending nowadays, for lack of a better question? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that kind of like, it, that's a very, that's a very double-sided question. So, uh, so yeah, so like personally, because I, I am a behavior analyst and that's where like I do my research, like I view um, behavior as something that's observable and measurable from the, from the outside. And so necessarily like, I, like I, we don't typically make assumptions about what's going on in someone's head. We call that like private mm. events. Mm. Um, but we we understand also that those private events can affect the behavior that goes on outside the body that is observable and measurable that we can measure, um, and that there are different motivations for that. And so therefore, we can measure those things. And so those are the things that we're going to interact with um, because we we're sure about those things. Like I don't know what's going on in a kid with autism's head. Um, but I know that when he does a certain thing, I can interact in a certain way that can, that can help assist him or change behavior in a certain way. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I would say that, I mean, I, I would say yes, that, um, but also I, I would say that really like that's kind of the whole part of behavior analysis. Um, and that's kind of why I like it so much is because I think that there are a lot of kids that have a lot going on, but they, but they do because of their disability, they, they lack some of the verbal skills to be able to communicate that to us. Right. And so therefore, like as behavior analysts, like we are trained to, um, assess, analyze and build programs to increase that verbal behavior, to help them to be able to, to respond and to, to explain, you know, what, what's going on. Right. Um, and I mean, I think that's, that's evident in, you know, like I, like I've had some kids that, have really incredible math abilities. Right. But then when it comes to them literally being able to ask for like, can I have that cookie? They don't have that ability. Right. And so therefore like, uh, you know, I'm trying to analyze that, to assess that, analyze it um, and build a program to help increase the, his ability to be able to ask for things and then be able to say, okay, not only are we going to be able to ask for a cookie, we're going to be able to ask for a drink. We're going to be able to ask to go to the bathroom. We're going to be able to ask for all these different things to all these different people in all these different environments yeah. So that you have all of the skills that you need to be able to access your environment rather than just all the good math skills. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't so like our, just so our lens is a little wider, if that makes sense. So Yeah, this that literally just made me think, because what was it, Steve Silverman? Is that the guy who did it? Yeah. yeah. He mentioned Rain Man, right, in his TED Talk. And I feel like that's sort of what I'm imagining when you're talking about what your mom said, Joe, right? Like these very specific abilities and this certain level of genius or what we would call genius because we lack yeah. vocabulary for it. But there's also that thing where, you know, you need Charlie Babbitt. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something yeah. that I was, I was talking with Joe a little bit 
a little bit about during the break is there is a difference between autism and savantism, which savantism is the ability to do something very, very well from a very young age um, with little understand with little learning history. Right. And so uh, savantism Mozart or something like that. Yeah. 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 Or like, yeah, the ability to be able to like hear a song one time and play it on the piano when you're four years old. Right. All those different things. Um, So that's savantism and savantism and autism are two very different things. But because people with autism do have restricted interests, savantism is found at a higher rate in individuals with autism. Does that make sense? Yeah. So so they're typically developing people that have savantism all the time, right? There's people with perfect perfect pitch and all kinds of different things like that. But because of the restricted interests from a young age, like their people with autism are at a are savants at a slightly higher rate. So right, that makes sense. Yeah, especially if you think about being highly focused on something in particular, right? Like it almost there's almost a brain chemistry thing that adds up there. Yeah, for sure. If you were like obsessed with a piano from the time you were two years old and that's the only thing you could think about all day, like you'd be very, very good at piano. Yeah. Right. Um, that's how so, I have a Whataburger. <laughs> Why are you going to say that, dog? You know, I don't have a Whataburger up here. That ain't fair. Don't do that. Hey, they're expanding, man. You might be able to get it yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. Shit, they better. I- I'm just stoked that Colorado's going to have a Chick fil A. But okay. Um, and we can cut this, dog, uh, Ross, because you might not want your name uh, in, into this because I, I found a topic that piqued my interest and I, and I went down many a rabbit hole. Um, again, I'm ignorant, y'all, and I'm attempting to be respectful. I promise you this. But I found many psychedelic therapies that have been successful in small sample sizes, admittedly, very small sample sizes, but uh, you know, it, 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 mushrooms and LSD specifically um, that essentially... It, they helped. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to categorize this in, in a way, but it, it, what I was reading is essentially picture like back in the day, the old phone switchboards, like the black and white videos of women physically disconnecting one line and plugging it into the other. Like we all know that. And it, it in a way, LSD and, and mushrooms and a lot of other, you know, whatever, but those are just the two that I found. They, in, in essence, instantly connect all of those inputs at the same time. So in my clearly ignorant opinion, that might help an autistic person make sense of the the overload maybe that's already happening. And and here's the deal. I wrote all of that down before I found an article about two hours ago, before we started re- recording this, uh, about the chemical 5-hydroxydimethyltryptamine, which is a chemical, uh, it's commonly referred to as bufotenine or whatever the hell, doesn't matter. But it only exists in uh, some species of toads in mushrooms, and in people with either autism or schizophrenia, which is interesting because, Ross, as you were saying earlier, like that's what autism used to be diagnosed as was early schizophrenia, but apparently it's very similar, at least in that chemical. It doesn't show up in, in the rest of us or, you know, whatever, but you know what I mean? Now, again, I, I'm ignorant, and but just, just trust me, my intentions are good. For the record, I've never done anything illegal in my life. Never once, never have, never will. So take whatever I'm about to say as fiction if you need it to. It's not, but take it that way if you're going to judge me, because I've done a few uh, different things in my lifetime, and while on them, it's damn near impossible to focus on small tasks, such as tying your shoes, using a remote control to change a channel on TV. You you have to, in the moment, tap into this like extra force to focus on little shit. It, it's specifically, a buddy of mine and I bought a ton of Play-Doh one time, and just opening the jars was damn near impossible. We kept getting distracted. We kept just literally getting angry because I was like, I can't. But we finally did. And when we did, 
We then spent probably three hours, the better part of three hours, constructing an entire elaborate landscape. We had different, like literally at one point I had a village, he had a village, we had barbed wire fences on our shit. Like now look, I know what I'm saying is absurd and I'm not trying to act like I know anything. I'm just saying that maybe there is a possibility of some of that. I mean, it, it is at least two in a couple of different studies. It's a fact that this chemical is present in certain mines. Is there any validity to the shit I just spewed there, Ross, in your opinion? Especially yeah, the I Plato mean, part. Please apply the Plato part to your everybody. Mouth, everybody you loves Plato. Um, Love yeah, I mean, that's the thing is there, there's emerging evidence for, for psychedelic uh, treatment for ASD uh, along with um, – with uh, cannabis treatment for ASD, um, along with, I mean, there's there's lots of emerging evidence, but but the the hard thing is is kind of going back to the evidence is not sexy, right? For that to be something that is moved forward to like clinical trials or something like that, uh, that that study that you find has to be replicated over a very large number of people and a lot. Um, and the, the hard thing is is because autism is such a spectrum, right? We we do what's called single subject research, so rather than having like a, a randomized control trial where it's like, okay, there's going to be a thousand people over here and a thousand people over here. And these people are going to get placebos and these people are going to get, um, you know, treatment. Uh, it, it's going to affect everyone differently with people with autism. Right. And so yeah. we have to do it on a case by case basis. So it's like, we're going to build this whole research study, right. That we're going to work on. And then we're going to see, uh, we have to, you know, interview people and we have to analyze behavior and we have to get a baseline. Right. And then we have to, implement the treatment, right? The cannabis treatment or the, the psychedelic Whatever treatment. Yeah. And we have to measure that over time, right? So one individual over time, right? And then we, typically, if we want to make sure that it's valid, we have to reverse it. So we have to take the treatment away. And then we have to, and then we have to add the treatment again, right? To show that there's functional relation there. And then typically, if you really want to show validity, you have to do a follow-up of three to six months. So that's just on one individual, yeah. right? The and so that... Yeah, so that is is what it takes to show evidence in one case, and so that would have to be replicated over a very large number of people with autism across a very large spectrum of communication ability, problem behavior, things like that, right? And so that is what it would take to show psychotropic evidence. So there is emerging evidence, like there are definitely studies out there that show um, behavior change, that show anxiety change, things like that with individuals with autism. Um, it's just for that to be a treatment that is recommended by a doctor, it's going to take a lot more and it also has to take consenting parents to be able to do that right or consenting oh, adults yeah. to be able to do that so who's going to agree to get um, their nine-year-old kid like you just can't that's going to be damn near impossible yeah 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 so i mean that's the thing like you know we we talked before we started a lot about just the process of getting something published so that people can read it right um i'm going through that right now where it's you know it's been months since i've submitted things and i i still don't i, I still don't even know if it's going to get published in an academic journal um, and it might just get rejected and sent back to me after I've been waiting for months, you know? So, so yeah, that's, that's part of it is just, uh, for that to happen, that has to take years and years of people, not only finding consenting people, but being able to find the amount of participants to be able to do it, um, and being able to show that happen over time. So, yeah, that's, I mean, so, so that those theories though, are why people like me exist, like researchers exist yeah. It's because we have these theories and we say like, oh man, I wonder if this would work. And then we do research on it. So that's like the whole, I mean, that's the part I love. And that's why I'm getting a doctorate and I'm trying to, to do this is because I, I really love being like, man, that would be so cool if that worked. Let's see if it does. Right. Yeah. So that's awesome. 
Well, dude, yeah. I, I, I got to admit, the more the more I look into this, and it's been probably the most fun I've had researching a topic just because I've been engaging a lot of people uh, on that autism subreddit. Just like I know it's it, you can't necessarily trust it because who knows what I'm talking to. It's like it's all you know, random. But like the more I dig into this, I, I got to admit, I started to wonder if maybe I was on the spectrum as well. And I, you know, I, I mean, and I know these are just like, I, I admit I cherry picked, but like a lot of symptoms I found is like enjoying rituals that have no outcome, intense anger, connection with animals, difficulty understanding pop culture. And if anybody's listened to any previous episodes, I am clearly not good. So like, and I know I admit I'm cherry picking, but like regardless, I was curious enough, curious enough to like take a couple tests online and blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't matter the results, but the more I dug in, the more I tried to realize like how difficult language that we've created is because it, the few people that I interacted with online and just a lot of the stuff that I read, like the idea of, of colloquialisms or, or poorly constructed metaphors, it, it apparently that like the, it, it, for people, certain people on the spectrum, metaphors don't work. Like the idea of saying like, Oh, don't have a cow or I'm so hungry. I could eat a horse. Like that shit doesn't like, it just doesn't fly. Teaching so, like, notes I, to young children with autism is so much fun though. Is oh, it? Oh, is it? Blast. It's I a blast. Because then occasionally, like, you get a little kid that's like, "Don't have a chicken," and you're like, "That's yeah, that's pretty great." Close. It's, it's good enough <laughs> like for me, I'm dude. So, don't I'm have a so cow, proud. Don't have a chicken. What's yeah, the difference? So like, that's awesome. So I mean, it, yeah, dude. Like, okay, so that's stuff like that. Like, it's it's so it it doesn't make that person that can't understand the metaphor any less capable. It, objectively speaking, honestly, it makes the rest of us weird for using words that we don't actually mean. Like we say things all the time that we don't actually mean constantly. And like, that's, that's not like, it's not dumb, but it makes us for if I, I would just imagine just trying to put myself in the point of view of a person that does not get metaphors, watching and listening to people that talk in metaphors, like y'all sound dumb. I mean, it's not dumb. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm just ignorant. Like the differences in expression and comprehension is is really all that it is. It's not it's not a lack of intelligence one way or the other. It's not one side being you know inefficient. It's not one side being dumb. It isn't that. It, it's just like a large chunk of the human population just talks one way, and a smaller chunk talks differently. I guess. I mean, it, it, so I guess what I'm saying is. Ju- just like the autism has a spectrum, I think gender definitions are about to become more of a spectrum as well. I think political parties are becoming more of a spectrum because, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a registered Republican and the amount of Republicans that I feel comfortable voting for is shrinking by the day. And the point of that entire rant is speaking of people that I'm losing respect for, I've got a handful of celebrities to talk about here with this week's quiz. <laughs> here we go. So let's this get week, it. This week we have the very awesome, carefully constructed incredibly neat exam incredibly neat okay vaccine vaccine sir uh so here's how we're gonna play i'm gonna name you three celebrities you have to pick the one that actually still thinks vaccines cause autism you're ready to play man i'm I'm gonna ask you about this yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna crush this (laughs) (laughs) okay uh we've got there's the first the first triplet jim carrey will ferrell or steve martin it's Jim Carrey for sure. It's gotta be Jim Carrey. It is Jim Carrey. All right, all right. Vanessa Williams, Jessica Alba, Alicia Silverstone. I don't know who that first person is, um, <laughs> but I'm gonna go with Alicia Silverstone. Who, did you say? who was the first person? Vanessa Williams. Yes. I'm gonna go with Vanessa Williams. It's Alicia Silverstone. Ross is too, yeah. too and that that hurts me because she was my first celebrity crush back in the day. Like I'll never forget that. But all right, um, this one, Little Wayne or Lil Wayne. Sorry, Lil Wayne. Kevin Gates, Flava Flav. Flava Flav seems like he's he's that kind of guy. I'll go Lil Wayne. 
I purposely put Flavor Flav to Amy that way. It's Kevin Gates, and that one kills me. I don't know if y'all know him, but I don't get oh, tired. He's one of the best fucking great. Like, that is my go-to jam. And when I saw his name on one of these lists, I was like, God. He actually says that his daughter is super smart because he never vac- gave her a vaccine. He's like, yeah, that's why she's excelling in her classes because I never vaccinated. I was like, God damn it, dude. I like you so much. But okay, last triplet. Robert De Niro, Bill Maher, Donald Trump. I mean, probably the last one. I'll go Bill Maher. You're both right, because it's all three. Mm, God damn it. Like, I I don't know Robert De Niro. I don't know Bill Maher. I've never met them. I know nothing about them. But I always assume they were smarter. You know what I mean? Like, I always assume Bill Maher kind of knew some shit. And apparently, like, like not. Like, whatever. It doesn't matter. So, I mean, point of all that is, is like, dude, Ross, how do you still get upset in your community and the people that obviously deal with it? Do you still get upset when people try and push that vaccines cause autism bullshit? Like, is that still around as much as it used to be? Oh, no, it super is. Yeah. Ugh. And it's very, no, it, well, it's not in like the, it, it's not in our community. It's just in the, oh, in the sure. general public. Yeah. yeah. But people yeah. around. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. Because oh. so, so do you guys know the history of how that happened? Yes. Well, at least I, I Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Is that who you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Wakefield, he was a he was a scientist in England. He's a he, piece of shit. I have no problem yeah. going on record saying that. Yeah, and yeah. He created this study that said that vaccines uh, showed a higher rate of autism in this county in northern England. Um, and he got book tours and all these things and stuff all around the world. Turns out somebody on his staff came forward and said, "Hey, we faked all that data." Yep. Um, and there's also been multiple other. So he he claims that the reason why the vaccines cause autism is this thing called the misrol that's within that actually like holds the vaccine up um, and that that causes high levels of mercury. So he's also one of the reasons why like things like chelation are a treatment for autism, which is literally like blood filtering, which has like killed kids with autism. That's but modern people, day leeches. What are we doing? Yeah. So, so people still use that because they believe that there's the misrol in people or like heavy metals in people's blood or kids with autism's blood. And that's what causes it. But he claimed that the misrol did it there. Now there is not even really trace amounts of the misrol in any vaccine in the world. Um, and he kind of got to trumpet that all the way, you know, th- through this book tour, but he's been discredited by the, by every scientific community. Uh, his, um, all of his studies have been redacted. Um, he's lost, he lost tenure at his university and he actually started a clinic here in Austin for another fad therapy. And no, uh, he didn't. He did. Yeah. It's still here. Um, he has now since then been removed. Um, and he's bouncing around some other clinic now in like the southeastern part of the U.S. You know what else I found about him, dude? Uh, the reasons for why he came out against the the MMR vaccine and saying that it caused autism. Do you know who funded a lot of his fake research? Some pharmaceutical company, right? Lawyers of parents who wanted to sue these That's vaccine right. companies. Plenty of other celebrities as well think this stupid shit, like Rob Schneider and Jenny McCarthy and like Danny Masterson. Like, did, I, like you know, I, I, I'm over the idea. Like, Not Danny Masterson. Be Danny Masterson. Dude, yeah, no, the, the Jenny McCarthy one's really interesting though because she is kind of like a champion in the autism community because she, yeah. she has a son with autism. And so she claims that uh, one, uh, not vaccinating him and two, uh, chelation and three, gluten-free, casein-free diet is what has cured quote unquote cured his autism oh that's interesting um but what they don't say is that she had a bcba that was on staff one-on-one with okay, her kids so for 40 that, for 40 hours a week for seven years that so <laughs> so you could be gluten-free and you can also actually get bcba help yeah, yeah. so that's oh, the thing he, he had aba services for like 40 hours a week for seven good. years and yeah. so that but the other things quote unquote cured her cured him of autism so 
which we, don't, your, we wouldn't use that either. <laughs> before we get to God talk, because that that's something that's really yeah, interesting. I have a question before God talk, too. Yeah, in your opinion, is that like, I don't even want to, is that almost necessary, or at least is that the best and most of you know, well, is that the best option for for any parent and any child who has autism? I mean, is one on one, you know, counseling BCBA is is that the 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 best avenue in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, that's like the only like truly evidence based intervention that's out there right now. And I mean, that's the thing too is like, I mean, Eric, you alluded it to to it is like previously, you know, previous to the last like ten years it was just really hard to get it for like lo- people of low socioeconomic status and stuff. Um, but the thing is like most insurance companies cover it now for kids with autism. Um, nice. so, so like most of the time for like the clinic that I clinics that I have worked for, um, we have, most kids are built through insurance. There are some private pay, um, but mostly it's built through insurance and Texas is working on trying to pass it for Medicaid right now. Uh, 48 other States have passed it for Medicaid and allowed low income people to access it. But Texas is number 49 currently. Um, and wow. yeah, or whoever, I don't know who's 50. I'm going to yeah, blame Mark. And, fuck him. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole thing because that, that's the thing is like, I mean, I, so I work in a title one school and I have a lot of kids that would really benefit from ABA services that are on Medicaid, but they can't access it currently. Um, and also they just release like the rates basically of like Medicaid of yeah, like they, what, yeah. what they would pay an ABA clinic for, for services. And it won't, it can't even sustain like a, uh, an RBT, which is like someone who has a high school diploma right. only, it, 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 it won't even pay for them to do this therapy. So, so it's a thing right but now. I mean, technically though, schools do have to offer some sort of at least sped right stuff. So there is, it's not zero. There's not zero options for people. Yeah. You know, there are definitely public school options and stuff like that. It's just the hard thing is that, that it, it varies pretty drastically. Yeah. So I was actually curious. So you were saying you, are sort of more or less the behavior coordinator for a campus, right? Like if we we're going to be general yeah. about it. Yeah. So I'm curious, what um, do you use behavior management systems like PBIS, like positive behavior intervention systems or like circles? Do you use any of that stuff? And how useful do you think stuff like that is for people on the spectrum as far as creating sort of a sense of community within behavior as a whole, because that's sort of like an idea that's in schools is how to create community to curb behavior and sort of make people, children responsible to other children. But I would imagine within the specific autism spectrum, that probably doesn't register the same. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I would say that like, so so the thing about it is, is that behavior is behavior is behavior. Right. And so like for, for me, if I'm designing a program for an individual with autism, it's going to look different than, you know, another kid that is typically developing that's in a general education class. Um, but the, the, I, the, the science is still the same. Right. Um, and so that, that's kind of the unique position that I have, like being at this school is like, you know, I've, I've kids in early childhood special ed that are, um, you know, young children with autism that are, have really beginning verbal skills, like maybe saying one word, maybe not even any words at all that have um, problem behavior, you know, like, uh, like aggression towards teachers or adults, things like that. Um, and so I, I'm building programs like that for, for those kids. And then I also, um, I'm at a title one school. We have one white kid in our whole school. Um, and, uh, traditionally title one schools are one underfunded and two, um, typically have higher rates of behavior. Um, and, and I mean, black and brown students, particularly boys are disciplined in schools at yeah, the disproportionality is incredible because I yeah. used to be in JJP's, right? Yeah. So it's it's insane. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're disciplined at super higher rates. They're sent to alternative placements at super high rates compared to like white peers. Um, and uh, honestly, like a lot of this, and this is more anecdotal, and this is kind of the study that I'm I'm running with this position, the longitudinal study, is trying to to get at this. And so, this is all anecdotal because I, I don't have a data pool to like actually have hard evidence behind it. Um, but teachers are typically white and female, right? Um, and so there, there's a, there's definitely a cultural aspect of this community aspect to behavior, kind of like what you're talking about and adult interaction that, that is cultural, um, particularly when the teacher is of a different culture than the student. Right. Um, and so, so there, there's that implicit bias behind that, right. Of like, um, you know, like Hispanic, like young Hispanic children interact with adults in different ways than white children than interact with adults in different ways than black children. Um, and so depending on your background, you have that implicit bias of like how, a how a young child should react to you. Right? right. Um, so for me, like I, I look at all behavior objectively or try to, you know, like I definitely have implicit bias that are like going on inside of me and stuff like that, that I've tried to address. Um, but you know, when I, when we, as a, a BCBA on a campus, right. I'm able to take that behavior where the, this teacher is like, you know, he's disrespectful. And I'm like, well, no, he's just saying words back to you like that. I can't measure disrespect. Like, how, how are you going to give me that? Like, yeah. I can't measure that, you know, but give me something I can measure and then we can we can build a behavior plan off of that. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that piece of like looking at behavior objectively and not looking at behavior as like good or bad yeah. um, is something that I've been able to train our teachers in really well. Um, and that has like. I mean, our, our behavior intervention plans have decreased from like 18 to seven in three years. And so like across the whole campus and our test scores have increased like 75%. That's awesome. Um, and our, uh, we were like the number three school in Texas and closing the gaps last year, which is like, uh, looking at the, uh, improvement in test scores for, for black children. Um, and, and I the think higher state. Yeah. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. So I, and I think a lot of that, not to my credit, honestly, it's my teachers. I'm, I'm just the one that's like advising them. Um, but I think a lot of that is because rather than having students, uh, you know, that are, you know, black and brown students at our school that are sitting in the principal's office because they like said fuck to a teacher. Right. Uh, we're looking at that objectively and saying like, Hey, that is communication, right? right. This person, this per this kid like probably doesn't have a, re a reinforcement history with adults. Right. Exactly. So, they, so I know this kid's home life. Right. And it's like, he doesn't have a reinforcement history with adults because a lot of the adults in his life and his life has really messed him up a little bit. Right. And so like, it's my responsibility to build a reinforcement history with this kid so that I can build, help him build a reinforcement history with his teacher so that he can be successful and generalize that to other teachers. So that when he's in eighth grade, he's not going to like flip off his teacher and walk out. Right. Um, so yeah, so that, that's like kind of the whole big picture. So it, it yes, Eric, we do use PBIS, right. positive behavior interventions and supports, but PBIS in the literature is really just ABA in disguise. Right. That's it's a just, fair point. As you were describing it, I was like, you know what? This sounds really familiar. Yeah. It's just ABA like with a with lipstick on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not aimed yeah. at general education populations or particularly populations who, you know, get in trouble at school. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But they use this like triangle that, um, yeah. that you're, 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 you're probably familiar with, but Joe, it's like a triangle and like there's tier one supports. Right. So like, um, like it's like 85% of kids should get all that. So it's like, everyone should be able to like earn paw tickets that they can turn it at the store to Simply earn put, it's more like you um, and reward good behaviors as much or more than you punish bad behaviors. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. We very rarely do like 
actual like punishment procedures at our school. Um, we, I mean, we do some and like, but those are usually very clearly lined out of like, Hey, this right, is yeah. the very hard and fast rule. You can earn all this, this good stuff. This will happen to you. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Like you earn all of this good stuff for doing like for us, it's like the only way that you're really going to like get kicked out of class or something like that, or like sent home or anything, anything even close to that is if you put, if is if you put your, yeah, you put your hands on somebody yeah, yeah. and all of our kids know that, like all of our kids are very clear on that, but like you can earn all the good stuff the other way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 85% of our kids get all of that. Right. And then we have another like 10% of our kids that are like getting some, some more support. Right. So they have like, I'm going in and telling the teacher, Hey, we're going to do this program. He's going to earn extra stuff from you in his classroom he may have one punishment procedure for like a certain behavior that we're really trying to get rid of. That's like really offensive or like really ha- like distracting to the class. Specifically um, yeah. Specifically yeah. focused. Um, and then we have 5% that have like a behavior intervention plan that I'm actually uh, taking data on their behavior, analyzing it, building a plan based off of that behavior that all people are going to follow no matter what, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, it's like a triangle kind of where it's like, 85% is the bottom of the triangle. And then there's like a little 15% chunk and then a little 5% chunk. It's like I'm a, sorry. It's like a food pyramid. I'm an yeah, idiot. Basically. Don't mind me. <laughs> yeah, so, just uh, don't, one don't know at the bottom. <laughs> uh, would you say that behaviors come out more with kids, you know, when they're interacting with adults as opposed to when they're interacting, interacting with, with kids their own age? Would you say, is, is that like a trigger? I know that's not the word I'm looking for, but like, would you say interacting with adults triggers more behaviors for lack of a better term? I think that that depends on the school. Um, and honestly, I think that depends on a lot on uh, the demographic. I think a lot of that is, uh, I mean, just being like very transparent, uh, like a lot of wealthy white schools, um, parents have really taught and like kind of put this like fear of God into kids of like, hey, you're going to respect adults in X, Y, and Z, right? Uh, I, you definitely have those the, those those cases where that's not the case, right? Um, but that's kind of the like the, the norm, the general norm, right? Um, whereas, like in in uh, in minority households and stuff like that, that one that may not be the case. A lot of times, I mean, it is in a lot of cases. Um, or like you know, uh, like young children in Title One schools have higher rates of living with um, someone who's not their parents, and so you know that it may be like an older caregiver or something like that. Um, or having a, you know, a parent who is not in the home, whether that is from separation or incarceration or, um, immigration, all those different, all the Asians, um, all, all those different, we yeah. Didn't have to Hateration, with, holleration. Yeah. All, all of those different things. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so like for them, they may not have, uh, as great of a reinforcement or punishment history with interaction with adults. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of shit's just been let slide. Yeah. Not, yeah. I, I mean, let slide, but also just like, hey, when I like try to do this nice thing, this person ignores me. Right. Yeah. Or like, hey, when I really try to like, you know, work hard and get my grades up, no one says good job. Or like, no reinforcement. that's why you reward the positive behavior. Yeah. Positive reinforcement. Yeah, it's simple. Or like, yeah. Or even, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure this has happened to you, Joe, as a parent. Like, Sometimes it's unintentional where it's like, oh, your kid's trying to bring you something that like, you know, is important. But then you're like, get what are you doing? Like, get out of here right now. Right. Oh, dude. Yeah. Um, and so like, you, you don't have, mean to, but it just doesn't, it doesn't register as important at the time. You're like trying to cook dinner or some shit and they're trying to show you like, it's, yeah, just bad timing really. But it, it, I'm sure that affects them a lot more than it does me just brushing it off. 
Yeah, exactly. And also, like, if you have parent, you know, like single parent households and stuff like that, that are having to work a lot to make ends meet, right? Or, uh, or you know, like maybe having to work multiple jobs to where, like, you know, there's just not a lot of bandwidth, right? Those are things that, like, we didn't necessarily all have to deal with, you know? Um, and so, like, the likelihood of those things, those negative interactions with adults are, are, you know, exacerbated. And so, therefore, it's like there's not, uh, there's not as many opportunities to interact positively with adults. And therefore, I mean, adults are just there to like yell at me and just, you know, yeah. like yeah. get me in trouble and stuff like that. Just really, I, just wanted, I just want to chill with my friends. Yeah. I mean, basically. basically. Yeah. That's all. That's all. They've, I, I get it. I mean, I don't get it. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't, I, I can only empathize so much, but I can at least empathize. Like that would be just a totally different point of view. Yep. Good God. Good God. Well, um, yeah. Wow. I don't know how to left turn back into God talk, but I, I'm down if you are, bro. Cause sure. as, as a, as a Mary Harden Baylor alum, what took you there in the first place? Um, that's a great question. I like thought I wanted to do youth ministry. And then I realized Ooh. like after like, I don't know, like a week there, I was like, I don't want to do youth ministry. <laughs> one, of, one of Eric and I's, I mean, Eric has known this guy for longer than I ever did, but I was his roommate at college and he is now a pastor. So like I, th- that was kind of the road I thought I was going on too, but he fully did. Now he's a pastor of a full church. So like that's kind of the same idea that we all kind of had. So, I mean, it, it, if you don't mind just being direct right now, do you believe in God? Yeah. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Satan? Yes. So do you believe in heaven and hell, or at least the possibility that there are more than one places to go when you die? Uh, y- yes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I think, um, yeah, I think that those things are all like very difficult because, um, yeah, like as a scientist, like I don't have evidence of those things necessarily. Oh yeah. Right. That's, that's any and all um, God talk. You can't, no one can prove anything. Yeah. And so that, uh, I feel like that in, in, in my interactions with people, you know, like I, I definitely, I I have those things that I, that I think and that I believe. Um, but honestly, I'm going to like piggyback off Keanu Reeves. Who's like, you know, the best philosopher in the world. Um, yeah, because he was asked this question, like, you know, what do you believe happens after you die? And he says, yeah, yeah. And he says, uh, the people that love us will miss us. Um, and so that's like, that's beautiful. You know that that yeah, I think it's it's beautiful, and I think that that's just a, a really accurate yeah um, picture of like you know like I I may hold these things that I believe, um and I I don't know for sure because I don't have scientific evidence of those things as a scientist you know, um but uh that is something I do know you know that is um, fact that's so, yeah, beautiful so, fact. so so that's kind of that's kind of like where I, where I, I land is like, I, I believe in these things, you know, and, and even then, like there are times when I'm like, I don't even know. Right. Um, because I don't have evidence, but that is something that I do know is that, you know, when we're, when we're gone, people who love us will miss us. So I like, I like, I like wrapping that, wrapping it up with that. Friggin' Keanu is great. That's freaking awesome. So did you, were you raised in a religious household? Uh, yeah. Yeah. My drug problem was we got drugged to church. Yeah. <laughs> I, ain't, <laughs> I ain't heard that before. That's a good like last week that I went to church twice on Sundays and their mind was blown. And I was yep. like, I thought that was kind of normal. Oh yeah. Yeah. Twice on Sundays, once on Wednesdays. That's yeah, the yeah. norm. Exactly. Twice on Sundays? Yeah, you go at night. 
Oh man, I thought we were. I thought I was raised pretty religious. Like, yeah, we would do church, and then we would do like choir practice was on Wednesdays. So, like, we would go there too, but like not twice on Sundays is a ton. But you know, we're, it's all Southern Texas. Like, what you gonna do? Like, that's yep. kind of how we did it. So, wow. Okay. So, I mean, if if you could, Ross, open a door that would answer all the 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 what ifs and all the potential. Like, basically, you can open a door that would tell you yes, there is, or no, there is not a God. Would you open that door? Damn. I don't. I don't think I would. I don't. Same. I don't think. I don't think I would. Um, For the record, the only same. one. Like yes, absolutely. I would totally open this door. You would? How would you not want to know this? In the same way that if if the three of us were going right now, we showed up at a gym to play three dudes. You know, say we're going to play three on three pickup. Question. Yeah, but say we were going to go play three on three pickup right now. Us three versus any other three dudes. And for the record, E, I'm kicking you in the corner. And you're going to switch it every time, but. Would you want to know if you're going to win or lose before the game starts? Would you want to know what the final score is before we start playing? At all. But but I would I would say Eric, so if if you're opening that door, does that does that affect how you live your life currently? It's a good question. Probably Ooh. does, yeah. Yeah. And so that 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 I think is part of it is like I I think that But is that just a, like that does that speak to a fear of change or does that just speak to like a comfort level? Like what is that? I don't, I guess what I'm curious is what is the fear there? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that for me, I think that the, I, I don't think it's a fear of change. Um, I think that it's honestly the opposite. I think it's more of like a fear of cynicism because I think in like trying to figure out <clears throat> um, just who I am and like what I believe I think that, you know, I, I've kind of landed all over the map. And I think that, uh, you know, there are times when I'm like, I'm, I'm certain, right? I feel certain, even though I don't have evidence, I feel certain. Um, and there are times when, when I don't, and on, on those times that I don't, I, I feel very cynical because I'm like, well, then what's the point? Like, why, why, why should, why should I be good to anyone? Right. Right. Like why, why, why should I, you know? Um, and and I think a lot of that has to do with, um, because one, like growing up and also like in my current position, like I, I've just seen some shit that like makes me wonder about is humanity good in the first place? You know, that's a question. Um, and so that is the thing where I'm like, I, I think that the, the implications for my life, in opening that door, swing me more towards cynicism and make me less caring of the people around me in in certain ways. And so I, that's something, that's something I don't want to risk if that makes sense. So it's the fear of cynicism, I guess. And I I do also understand like there could be this idea that like not knowing is the whole purpose, right? Like to have the faith of, you know, what is it? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, but evidence of things not seen not seen yeah right? and that's sort of the whole point but i don't know man just knowing would just be because if the whole point is to know god and then if i can know that that's real then that changes everything to me i don't know it's it is an interesting hypothetical i love the question joe but e, can i put it to you this way if you were to open that door and you found that there was no god would you interact differently would you treat people differently i don't know i doubt it quite honestly that's in my head i assumed that because you're just a a good person and and i would like to think that i'm the same 
I mean, you, you know, in the same way that like you never know how you're going to react until you're in the moment. Like, I can't say for sure what I would do no, if I, I had. I, I think there is there is a certain segment, like you know, all these people who you know I've grown up with who are Christian and who still like go to church every day and you know do the whole thing. Like, I don't know what my responsibility would be to them after that, right? If that was the case, that is a question I don't know that I could answer until it happened. But it is an interesting question, right? Like, once you know a truth, what is your responsibility? Yeah, to share that truth or not. Interesting. All right. Uh, wow, that's, man, I like that. That's, I didn't expect that to go that way. All right, uh, then I guess kind of last question, sort of, kind of, whatever. Ross, are, is you the soul, the, the, the uniqueness that is Ross, even unique? Is there a chance that you were ever before, you know, kind of the idea of reincarnation or that some other astral plane or blah, blah, blah. The, the idea that every, like, you know, just if and when, if you're, you and your wife ever have a kid, is that kid new? completely and altogether fresh or is there any remnants of a bygone era that might you know what i mean like is there anything recycled there or is every soul every person new um i think that if there is it it has no effect on how i interact with that person so even if it even if it's a kid mm. right even if yeah. it's my kid right um that whatever is the remnant or whatever re reincarnation thing, you know, if that is true, um, it has no effect on how I, I love that kid. Right. Or how I interact with my neighbor, um, regardless, or, or even if I'm, uh, I am something, you know, from the past or whatever the thing is like that, that doesn't affect, um, how I engage with the world, if that makes sense. So, God. so, so maybe, I don't know. But, I like that. Your answers tend to be practical, and I, I really appreciate. That's a very that Keanu sure. answer, though, right? Yeah, dude, that's literally what I was thinking. I was like, that sounds like something Keanu would say. Like, that's that's. I really appreciate that point of view from I someone strive, who does still believe. That's that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, I strive in most areas of my life to be like Keanu Reeves. So, dog <laughs> alive, I get it. Yeah. Oh boy, that's got that. All three of those were so good. Well, uh, well, dope, dude. This was uh, this was awesome, man. Thank you, brother, for for coming on and all this. Yeah, absolutely. Slightly different than NBA talk, but uh, you know I, I like it. Yeah, I'm I'm always down to branch out a little bit. Heck yeah, man! We'll uh, we'll do this again and such. And uh, yeah, anybody listening? Okay, seriously, anybody listening? If you made it this far, you clearly don't hate us. So please, please tweet us at everything is in seven because I it, whatever it's not, I'm not original, but tweet us anything. You pick the next topic. Pick a movie. Hey, look, if you want to prank me. Pick a book and make me read it. I haven't read a book. Reading Ross's paper took me fucking forever because apparently I've forgotten the critical reading skills that I've ever had if I ever had them. Like, dude, pick anything. Seriously, pick something as random as the annexation of Puerto Rico. No, Be it the actual historical I event. Ulysses, because you put this out there. Yeah, dude, no, do it. Do it. Pick anything. Even if it's the annexation of Puerto Rico, be it the historical event or the football play from Little Giants. I don't give a shit. Pick it. Tweet me and we'll do it. I promise. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time.